Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is uh, a very special evening uh, at the Atlantic Council. I'm Fred Camp, President and CEO, um, and it's my profound pleasure to welcome you all to this special event, Reflections of a Former Secretary of Defense with Chuck Hagel, the 24th U.S. Secretary of Defense. Uh, the title of this session suggests exactly what we intend, a combination of oral history uh, with Secretary Hagel dealing with many of the key aspects and events of his tenure at the Pentagon, along with observations on his part to provide context and significance to those events. Uh, we'll start uh, with uh, an extended conversation, first between the two of us, and then we'll turn to the audience uh, for questions. And Secretary Hagel, I see a lot of familiar uh, faces out there in the audience. I'm not sure if that's a good thing. I may owe, I may owe money. I don't know. Uh, or some old bar bill. All right. Now, it's particularly unnerving to have uh, Senator John Warner in the front row because uh, he knows the truth. With, it's an uh, honor to see you, uh, Senator Warner, and uh, one of the finest United States senators uh, this country has ever had and leaders of uh, our country in so many ways. So, John, thank you for coming. Senator Warner, even after that compliment, you are welcome to ask an impertinent question <laughs> if you'd like. Um, I, I want to thank uh, Secretary Hagel, first of all, for coming to the Atlantic Council for his first extended public on-the-record event uh, since he left office uh, almost a year ago now. Um, uh, and as you all know, aside from being the first enlisted uh, soldier and the first Vietnam veteran uh, to serve as Secretary of Defense, uh, he was also uh, co-chairman of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, a two-term U.S. Senator. He served in the administrations of three presidents, President Reagan, Pre President George H.W. Bush, and of course, President Obama. He headed many organizations, including the USO, was an accomplished business leader, uh, decorated Vietnam War veteran with two Purple Hearts. And of course, most important of all of that, he was chairman of the Atlantic Council for four years. <laughs> uh, from 2009, 2013, which was a time of uh, incredible growth and transformation of the Atlantic Council. And uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Secretary, um, it was great fun working with you during Thank those you. years. Uh, it, he now serves at the Atlantic Council as a distinguished statesman, a member of our International Advisory Board, and a member of the Advisory Council of the Rafi Kariri Center for the Middle East. Knowing your own modesty, Secretary Hagel, and with the audience forbearance, uh, I'd like to briefly review uh, some of your accomplishments in office to set up the context for our conversation. You led the Pentagon during what I think it's fair to say was one of the more tumultuous and challenging periods for U.S. defense and foreign policy, and you provided steady leadership throughout, reinvigorating alliances and partnerships in the Middle East and Asia, certainly in Europe as well, uh, but there was uh, a lot going on in the Middle East and Asia during that time, setting in motion institutional reforms and working to ensure our troops and their families got the support that they had earned and get the support that they have earned. You were the first Secretary of Defense in nearly two decades, decades to simultaneously face the reality of shrinking budgets and growing demand 
for U.S. military support around the world, and we'll talk about that. You get a feeling for the Secretary's challenges when you consider that sequestration went into effect on his third day in office, uh, forcing the furlough of civilian employees and stand down of units around the world, and I think we'll talk some about that. Uh, also, in his first day in office, first days in office, North Korea ratcheted up provocations. One of your first decisions was to increase ground-based interceptors in Alaska to protect the homeland. You prioritized the Asian Pacific rebounds with six trips to that region, and we'll talk about that too, particularly in light of North Korea's uh, nuclear tests last week. You faced Russia's annexation of Crimea on March 18th. 2014. You had tough conversations with Russia's Minister of Defense, directed a series of measures to reassure NATO allies, and were an early advocate of providing defensive weapons to Ukraine, so we'll get to that as well. You led the development of U.S. military strategy against ISIL in both Syria and Iraq, and back in August of 2014, only weeks after Daesh declared itself a caliphate, you were ahead of the White, House, the White House and many others in recognizing ISIS dangers. Finally, you were a strong advocate for humanitarian intervention to prevent the slaughter of thousands of innocent Yazidis, Iraqis, and Kurds. You brought together Gulf countries this past April for the first US GCC defense meeting in over five years. You had more than 40 calls to then Field Marshal al-Sisi as you sustained and stabilized the US-Egyptian relationship. This just scratches the surface of the challenges you faced and the actions you took. So <clears throat> let's get started. Thank you. Um, uh, let's start uh, with maybe, you'll forgive me, you always had to forgive me as a recovering newsman <laughs> when, I was, when we worked together. Uh, but there is some news uh, from Iran today. Uh, and you would have had to handle that over at the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense as uh, 10 of our sailors were detained, released today. Uh, how would you have handled that? How would you have looked at that? Well, Fred, first, uh, thank you. And uh, thanks to the Atlantic Council uh, for an opportunity to exchange some thoughts. And uh, I uh, uh, valued my time here and uh, my association still with this institution because I think it is one uh, of the most relevant uh, institutions uh, in this town with a reach around the world that's, uh, that's rather significant and I think the importance of this institution and all of you who have been involved and are involved, uh, your involvement will continue to be, uh, I think, particularly important and Fred, thanks for your leadership. Um, to your question, first, I don't know what all the facts are. Um, uh, I am, uh, uh, like now most of you, a mere mortal. Uh, I don't have all the, uh, the intelligence and information that, that I once had. But based on what I do know, uh, first, we're, we're very uh, uh, pleased, uh, obviously, that uh, our sailors were released when they uh, were released. Uh, from what I know, the commitment the Iranian government made to Secretary Kerry uh, was honored. They were released uh, uh, this morning. Uh, second, um, I suspect there will be a full investigation. There needs to be on what happened, why did it happen. Um, 
was this a mechanical issue? Uh, was there more to it uh, than that? Obviously, as I uh, just left my office to come over here this afternoon, I noticed new footage on television uh, uh, showing those sailors on their knees with their hands behind their heads uh, with uh, uh, guards pointing machine guns at them. So uh, that will be explored uh, as well. So there are a lot of pieces that uh, we need to understand. Uh, we don't uh, have any of those pieces yet, as far as I know. Uh, we will get those. But um, in the interest of our sailors, in the interest of our country, uh, it, uh, it's good news that uh, our sailors are out of there. Uh, second, uh, on this particular point, uh, I have supported uh, strongly and, and helped shape the uh, Iranian nuclear negotiations. And, and you were the co-chair here with Stu Eisenstadt of our Iran task force. I see Barbara Slavin here who's been uh, leading that. So Barbara was early on and well. working on these issues. Uh, that's right. And, and I, uh, I think what happened 24 hours ago in Iran or off the coast at Farsi Island uh, did uh, very much put in jeopardy the future of, of that agreement with this weekend being the beginning of, of the unraveling of those uh, sanctions. And if that would not have been handled by the Iranians uh, the way it was from what we do know, then I, I think there would have been a real question whether uh, the unraveling of those sanctions would have gone forward. On, Just, the, on the day of the State of the Union. On the day of the State of the Union. So um, let me leave it at that, Fred, because I, I really don't know any more than most of you do. But if I had been Secretary of Defense, um, I'm, I'm sure, uh, just as Secretary Carter uh, is, is doing and will do, as well as our uh, Chief of Naval Operations and all of our senior leaders at the Pentagon and in the White House and the State Department, uh, we, we will get the answers to these questions. So let's, let's start uh, uh, big and broad, and then we'll work down into some of the specific issues. Um, so uh, you know, we at the Atlantic Council talk a lot about this being a defining moment in history, maybe as important as the end of World War I, World War II, the end of the Cold War. How did that look uh, uh, from the inside? Uh, how, how did the world look from the inside of the Pentagon? Maybe in that context, also, what surprised you in the job? Fred, um, everyone in this room knows uh, that um, we, the world, 7 billion now global citizens living in a global community, underpinned by a global economy, uh, are building a new world order. Uh, we are defining a new world. And that is the result of, uh, of history. Uh, but specifically, it's the result of the greatest diffusion of economic power in the history of man. Uh, the result of technology exploding that uh, now gives more people, more nations, and non-nation uh, players uh, new possibilities, new opportunities, both for good and bad. Uh, demographics are shifting dramatically. Resource requirements, environmental issues, uh, are now coming into play uh, uh, at about, about the same time. So we've got to recognize first that this new world order is being defined, it's being shaped, and it's being built. Uh, second, the world order that existed uh, that 
the United States and its allies uh, built in that 10-year period after World War II. Really, has done pretty well for the world. Uh, we have made mistakes. It's been imperfect. But there's been no World War III. There's been no nuclear exchange. And I think uh, by any uh, metric that uh, we would want to apply to mankind, I think uh, we can say, because of health care, uh, more opportunities for freedom, dignity, possibilities, education, technological advances, that in many ways it's a better world. So we, we have to factor all of that in with what's going on in the world today, the crises. There's another part of this that uh, I think cuts to your uh, question, uh, Fred, from what I saw on the inside as Secretary of Defense. Also before that, as I was, you noted, co-chairman of the President's Intelligence uh, Board for four years and then the Senate for 12 years on the Intelligence Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, is that as the world has progressed, that has led to uh, more and new expectations by more people, expectations in what they believe their rights are for what kind of world and life they should have. Uh, communications has changed everything. Technology has changed uh, everything. That's good, by the way. Uh, sure, it presents more challenges, but I think that's good because isn't that what the United States and the West have strived to do after World War II in building institutions that we built after World War II, institutions of, of, of common interest, these coalitions of common interest, uh, that were meant to find the common denominators of all of our interests and build our relationships on those. That's, that's, that's meant a world of allies and relationships, and I think those relationships, allies, alliances, partnerships are going to be more important uh, as we go deeper into the 21st century than, than we ever have. I saw that very up close, uh, Fred, in the two years I spent as Secretary of Defense. Uh, and it's, it's, it's what I had seen as, uh, as, as I had been part of seeing the kind of world that we're in and, and thinking about what kind of world are we going to have and what kind of a world uh, uh, is, is ahead for uh, all of us. As to your question on surprises, uh, I don't know if there was any, any one defining surprise or a big surprise, but I would answer your question this way. It, it did reinforce uh, in the two years that I was Secretary of Defense how um, unpredictable and volatile the world is. And uh, as one of my predecessors uh, Secretary Rumsfeld talked about the unknowns. Um, you, you, you can always count on the unknowns uh, uh, to factor into uh, governance and relationships and what's next. And that means as a leader, uh, you don't uh, put together a group of fortune tellers every week. Uh, but as a leader, you've got to build margins for those unpredictables and those unknowns and uncontrollables. And that's the other thing I think that is not surprised me, Fred, but it, it, it really hit home with me, the uncontrollables now that we face in the world. The United States is by far, by any measurement, uh, the most dominant country on earth, uh, starting with the economies. There's no country close to us. But that doesn't mean the United States uh, can and will or certainly should dictate or impose or occupy or invade. Uh, we work with allies. 
uh, we work around the common interests that we focused on after World War II. But now there are more uncontrollables, I think, than we have ever seen. Last point I'd make, most people in this room, uh, most people in America, the 330 million Americans, were born during, uh, were born during World War II or after World War II. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that, uh, and I was born uh, right 1946, right after World War II, and my father came home from World War II, um, that our expectations, our world, has been a world that America has completely dominated in every way, in every way. And we've made some big mistakes, too, by not being responsible uh, with our power. Uh, I think we've done far more good in the world than any nation in history. But we have to face the fact that we have blundered into some big mistakes because we didn't pay attention and we didn't listen and we didn't reach down and try to understand a culture of another nation or another group uh, of people. Um, that's made us wiser, Fred, and I think uh, it will enhance us as we go forward. We're <clears throat> trying in our Scowcroft Center for International Security to talk a lot about what is America's role in this world. Um, and I know you've given that a lot of thought and you had to put into practice. But when you see whether it's ISIS in the Middle East or whether it's the Ukraine situation uh, with Russia or whether it's uh, China and the South China Sea, there's just a, a proliferation of challenges. Uh, but there isn't a proliferation of resources. And so as you're sitting there and you're thinking about it, and then we'll drill down on, on some of these specific issues, but in a general sense, uh, America's role in the world now as compared to the Cold War, pre-World War II, how do you see America's role in shaping this new order that you're talking about? First, I, I think it's, uh, it's clear to me, and again reinforced by two years of Secretary of Defense, that uh, America's leadership in the world is really indispensable. And I say that, by the way, as an American who has great pride in his country, but I say that also as an American with great humility. And Americans need to be humble about this. Uh, we are really, truly the indispensable nation. Now, that doesn't mean we can fix every problem. Not at all. And we have to be very careful and deliberate uh, in, in thinking through this. But there is no other country in the world that can bring nations together or alliances together or formations together. And people do rely on our leadership. Uh, our leadership is really, in my, in my opinion, uh, critical. And so your question about America's role in the world, I think we need to stay engaged and reach out and not be afraid uh, of, of other nations becoming uh, uh, productive, successful, their economy's growing. After all, that's uh, what we have espoused uh, because that leads us to, to some conclusion. It's, it's flawed, I, I get it. Uh, but that conclusion is the more stability in the world, the more peace in the world, the more prosperity for everyone in the world. Now, people could say, well, but that's kind of a uh, that's a pretty optimistic view of the world. Well, that, that's true, and, and I am an optimist. Uh, I think a realist as well. But the fact is um, stability, global stability, is, is, is essential for all of us to survive, not just prosper. 
And without America's leadership and our role in that, uh, our role in the world, uh, I don't think it happens. I don't think it can happen. And so uh, that's where I would start and answer your question about America's role in the world. I, I would also add that we, we've got to, to adjust more to the realities of other nations prospering where they're going, their expectations, their expectations, which I noted uh, earlier. Uh, it, it is, if you just look at the straight demographics of the world today, they, they are, are dramatically shifting in different directions. And when you look at especially the troubled spots in the world, and we have many professionals here who have spent their whole lives in some of these areas, and some of our American ambassadors and generals uh, who are here, Ryan Crocker, I see in the front row, Frank Ricardini, there, there are uh, others here who uh, have spent their entire uh, lifetimes and professions in this business. Uh, it's dramatic what's shifting. And so we have to adapt to that in our role in the world. That doesn't mean we retreat from the world. That doesn't mean we forfeit our position or our values. But I, I, I've always uh, uh, kept in mind something that Henry Kissinger said years ago, and that is when he was talking about democracy. And we've got to be careful that that we don't think our Western or specifically U.S. democracy is the only democracy, and therefore we impose it, you, we fit it into your country no matter what your history is, no matter what your culture is. Can't do that. And what he used to say, and still does, and, and I remember him saying this once in a speech, that we should foster democracies, but they have to be attuned to regional specific demographic democracies, that, that uh, we, we, we've got to help countries develop their own democracies and their systems of government. And uh, the fact is, when you look at our democracy, uh, our Congress, our Constitution, it is different from any other Constitution uh, in, in the world. And uh, the British have one that's different, the French do, the Germans do, uh, everyone has a has a little different take, but the, the common dynamic to this is, is respect for all, dignity for all, freedom uh, for all, freedom of choice, freedom of initiative, uh, and uh, value of hard work and education and skill sets also, and responsibility. Responsibility for who we are and what we produce and uh, the role that we have uh, in, in the world. So uh, that's the way I would address that general question. So let's get <clears throat> a little bit more specific into the Obama administration and how it's uh, uh, dealing with this really complex and, and confounding world that one, uh, one has to wrestle with. Um, uh, a, a few days ago, Foreign Policy uh, published a, a, a uh, the results of an extended interview with you. But I think for us that, who really worry about uh, American execution of foreign policy, uh, there was one quote in the piece that was from you that was a little troubling. And it was- There's only one? That's well, good. I... The, uh, there, there were a number <laughs> that were troubling. Depends on uh, whose interpretation. <laughs> but the quote that, that, that I saw uh, that uh, I picked out is, uh, you said, for one thing, there were too many meetings. We kept deferring the tough decisions, and there were always too many people in the room. 
what one read in that piece was a, a description of micromanagement, meddling. Your predecessors, uh, Secretary Gates and Panetta, pointed to this as well. I, I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. And, and is this unique? Is this really any different than the Nixon White House? And, 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 and essentially, how, how did you experience that? And what dangers uh, lie in this? Well, Fred, I'm not going to uh, uh, cover the same ground I covered in the, in the foreign policy uh, uh, article. And if anybody wants to read it, if they haven't, they can certainly go back and read it. But l let me get to the more, uh, I think, specific point in, in those remarks, at least my intent and what I saw. Um, let's start with your point about don't all administrations try to dominate their cabinets and their government. Yes, as far as I know, I haven't been in all of them and haven't been around for hmm. all of them, but I've known uh, every president uh, uh, since uh, Richard Nixon, and I've known most all of their top people. Uh, many of these administrations I've worked with, either in or out of government. It doesn't make me an expert on anything. John Warner and others uh, have known a lot more than I, I've known and had more experiences. But uh, I, I, I probably have had my share, at least enough to uh, draw some conclusions. So yes, um, this administration is no different from past administrations. But, but what's dangerous is, uh, to me, is uh, successive administrations take office. Uh, at least my my sense of this is, as I've witnessed it and uh, w and seen it from the inside in working with the administrations, the last, especially the last few. Um, each successive administration tries to dominate more. And why that is not healthy for our government and our country to start with uh, is it. Um, it cuts into the very fiber uh, of, uh, of governing. Governing is not dominating. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. You don't govern by dominating. Uh, a president uh, has tremendous assets and abilities and forums. Uh, I mean, we treat our presidents more royally than royalty treats its royalty. Uh, in the world, which has always been a bit perplexing to me, but it's, uh, I mean, we, we, we tried to get away from King George and, of not King George Bush, but King George of England. But uh, you can never be too clear in this town, by the way. I, uh, but the point is, it's, it's dangerous to governance because like any institution, you need good people and you need to trust good people. If you don't think they're good people, you don't trust them, they shouldn't have asked them to come in to start with, but you must rely on the good people to govern with you. You're the president, you're the White House, everything, everything flows in an administration. Some of you in this room have worked in administrations know that the two most important jobs in, in, in any president's administration, not Secretary of Defense, not Secretary of State, but the chief of staff to the president and the national security advisor. Why do I say that? And, and by the way, those are two jobs that are, that are not Senate confirmed. Uh, everything flows from those two jobs. Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, other secretaries, they don't make policy. 
I mean, we have responsibilities in our own areas, but, but, but we're essentially operators of what the president wants of his policy. Now, we have a seat at the table to try to influence that, absolutely. Uh, but certainly defense doesn't make policy. It implements and executes policy, has to. If nothing else, follow our Constitution. But all the directives, everything, all the policies made out of the White House. And so your chief of staff and your national security advisor control that process. And, and when you dominate departments and you dominate agencies and you, and you dominate the very people that you count on, you rely on to execute policy, then you are really impeding your own ability to govern. And you have to, I think, also understand that governing is not just for a president. In our system of government, because we have three co-equal branches of government, is not about just everything the president says, not about just the executive. You, you do have to work very closely with the Congress. Now, I know that's not easy. Uh, I've been on both sides of that. I get that. Our founders didn't intend it to be easy. Our founders didn't intend legislation to get through Congress easily, as John Warner and others know. Uh, they made it difficult for good reason. And our Constitution has saved this country uh, over the years many, many bad decisions and many, many bad uh, le legislative pieces. It's to, it's to cooperate. That's, that's leadership. That's governance. You cooperate. You work with. You trust your people. Secretary of Defense, when people say uh, they come up to me and I'm flattered and I appreciate it, it was a privilege to serve under you. Nobody served under me. Um, I was Secretary of Defense. I had the overall responsibility of that department. But in, in the Defense Department, you have empires within empires. And you have to understand how you have to work with each of, of, of those empires. And if you don't do that, then you will fail. You will fail the president. You'll fail your country. You'll fail the security of our nation if you don't do that. So uh, your question about why I said some of what I said, yeah, it was frustrating, and I didn't think it was good, and the long meetings, uh, the, just kind of the, the recycling of issues, too many people. You get too many people in a room, it's chaos. It always is. And everybody wants to talk, and everybody wants to explain how smart they are. And uh, always there's uh, the reason why you can't do anything. But what if? Well, you can what if yourself right out of business, right out of every decision. I've always thought about human nature, and really we all start with we're all people first. We all have weaknesses. We all have strengths. Uh, I've always believed that you can talk yourself into anything, and you can talk yourself out of anything. That's where I always start with myself, with people. Not that I've been successful at that in my life uh, necessarily, but at least I think I've understood that. And uh, I try to always factor that in. So um, let me stop there. And if you want to follow up on our going, yeah, with the expense of belaboring, and I don't want to. Uh, uh, you know, I don't want to go back to the, do the whole foreign policy article, but I think this is an important point. Is it your view that the President of the United States is being ill-served by the way in which uh, the White House is micromanaging the, 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 uh, the departments? Now, Fred, you're talking like a journalist now. Uh, 
The, you know, a, a quick yes or no kind of uh, answer. Well, I'll answer, answer it this way. I, yeah. I think I actually kind of uh, covered it in my, in my yeah. answer. But um, the only thing I would add to what I said is you also recognize, you have to recognize, uh, that every president of the United States is faced with huge issues and huge challenges. And it goes back to what I said earlier in my earlier comments about the uncontrollables, the unknowables, yeah. the complications, and so on. So uh, on a good day, it's a tough day for any president yeah. because of the world it's in. Uh, so presidents have to do what they have to do based on what's most comfortable for them. How can they work best inside their, their own administration? Mm -hmm. uh, every, every president has their own style. Uh, and, and I think each president learns um, as, as they go uh, along. So I, I, again, I would just rely on the yeah. answer I already gave to, you, to your question about governance overall. Because if, if, if you want to bring in the best people you're not going to get the best people if, if, if they think that they're going to be constantly uh, second-guessed, overloaded with uh, micromanagement uh, and all the rest that goes into that, or their time wasted at endless meetings. Hmm. You're just not going to get the quality you need to help you, the president, govern the country okay. at a difficult time, and every president uh, is faced with with huge issues and big big issues, difficult issues. Thank you. Um, and, and let's go through a few uh, issues. Uh, um, uh, quite a list here to go through, so we'll go through them relatively quickly. Budget. Uh, I mentioned in the opening that you confronted sequestration right in your first week. How much time and energy did you have to spend on uh, budget issues? And then I guess the question that grows out of that is, does the U.S., in your view, have the budget and, as a result, the military force it needs right now? You accurately noted that uh, three days after I became Secretary of Defense, sequestration hit. And sequestration, by the way, is still the law of the land. Um, the Congress and the President last year came to an agreement on, uh, on adjusting those cuts, but uh, the Pentagon... Uh, first through a 2011 agreement with the Congress and the President, started taking a $50 billion a year cut to cut $500 billion over a 10-year period of time. On top of that, in addition to that, was sequestration, which was another $50 billion cut the Pentagon. So when I came into office three days later, I was confronted with uh, a budget that had already essentially been accepted. We budgeted for everything, our chiefs, and the Pentagon has to have the certainty of long-term budgeting for weapon systems for a lot of things. I mean, a five-year budget for the Pentagon, as John uh, knows too, as Secretary of the Navy, is nothing. I mean, the Pentagon has to have 20-year uh, budgets in their own mind and their own thinking and their own planning. But to stay on subject, uh, that meant that we had to take $50 billion dollars out of our current plans, $50 billion. Uh, so what I did uh, immediately was I ordered what was referred to as a strategic choices management review of, uh, first of all, where are we? 
we brought the Chiefs in. Uh, obviously, all our financial people had to be in this. But this was going to have to be some policy. These were going to have to be some policy choices. That's why the name of that review was Strategic Choices in Management Review, because we were going to have to make some tough choices and decisions. Where were you going to cut $50 billion in this budget year? That then resulted, eventually we, we came back, with, we went combatant commanders, we went to all our leaders all over the world. We brought everybody in, so I wanted to understand from everybody, not just the people at the Pentagon, but uh, the combatant commanders that had the responsibility all over the world, which are really the ones that are out there uh, on, on the firing line every day and their people, uh, what they thought. And we, we came back, we worked together on this, and it required, first when we looked at this, we thought we were going to have to furlough people 21 days. And I said, we can't do that. I, I, that's just unacceptable. I, I can't, I will not do that. So we eventually got it down to, at the most, in some cases, three days, in other cases, five days. Uh, we had to stand down all training for a few months. No Air Force training. No basic Army training, no Navy steaming. All our operations were on hold, no maintenance, uh, just to get us through the year, just to, uh, to get us through the year. Then as we started to kind of work our way through this over the months, then, if you recall, also a few months later, there's a 16-day government shutdown, uh, which was another uh, surprise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because the politicians, through their mindless, irresponsible way of doing things, and I've been on that side of the street, uh, said either you do it my way, a certain group in the Congress, or we'll threaten to shut down the government, and we'll shut down the government. Well, they did. And after we had to, because it was law, and we didn't have any money, that was on top of the 50 billion, uh, I said, I'm going to bring back uh, a number of people. And I took some heat on that from uh, a lot of people. But I said, I'm not going to comply with that. Sue me. I, did, I can't do that for the national security of this country. I won't do it. Uh, now, uh, we did have uh, some of our people out for that 16 days. It hurt us terribly. I mean, you just can't take people out in, the, in those cycles and then bring them back in 16 days later and say, okay, pick up where we left off. And what was particularly irresponsible and nutty about a government shutdown is eventually everybody got paid what, what, what they didn't get paid initially because of the shutdown because we don't have any money. Why? Because the unions who represented many of them, people went to court. It was arbitrated, and we had to pay back pay. Of course we did. So what did we gain? We put everybody back, and I hope this Congress uh, got a pretty good understanding of what you do to your country uh, when you shut down a government, when, when you say, we're just not going to function as a government, and I'll make my political point. Well, you go make your political point out on the campaign trail, pal. Not, not risk the security of this country. So I spent a huge amount of time, Fred, on budgets. I had to. I didn't have any other choice. 
mean, there, there was no one else who could make the final choices and decisions, but I, I, back to a point about people, how important yeah. people are. I was very fortunate. I had tremendous people to work with at the Pentagon and all over the world, these professionals, both uh, uniformed military uh, and political appointees and, and in particular uh, civilians, government civilians, who get vilified all the time on the campaign trail. Government's lazy, government employers are lazy. We haven't given them raises uh, over the years, not just defense, but, uh, and we better be careful with that too because our best people, qualified people, they're not gonna be interested in going into government. And why should they be if they're continually threatened and vilified and no, uh, and no increases? But I had to rely on a tremendous group of people in those three particular branches and they, they fulfilled every expectation and, and uh, if America could have seen those people and how they worked through these big issues in a crisis for the good of the country, it wasn't for their own personal benefit but for the good of America, this country had been very proud and would have a whole different view, many of them, than what many of these politicians talk about these lazy government workers today. Um, and, and do we have the budget and, and the military force that we need to maintain our position in the world? We're getting perilously close for, for me to say no. Mm. I think we are right on the edge, uh, Fred. Uh, if that agreement had not been made with the President and the Congress to, uh, to uh, put another $35 billion back in, essentially to the Defense Department this, this year, and another, I think, 15 or so next year, uh, then I would have had to say absolutely not. Now, it's gonna be interesting when the budget presentation is made here, another month or so up on the Hill, uh, what our chiefs are gonna say about that. Uh, because the, the chiefs uh, of the services are under obligation, oath, responsibility, to, to respond when the chairman of the Armed Services Committee asks the chief as many of you in this room have testified, General Wald and others, and Chairman Warner and many others know how this works. They say, uh, General, can you, can you assure America that this budget that you're presenting today will secure this country and do the things that you believe as Chief of Staff of the Army or the Air Force, whatever it is, can do to secure this country? And these chiefs will have to be honest. And I think we're right on the edge. Fred, you said something in your generous introduction of me um, about I served at a time when we, first time in a long time, uh, when we were cutting the military budget, but at the same time there was more demand for our, mili for our military around the world. You can't have it both ways. Now, if there are politicians who think they can, they, they better go back to the drawing board because it won't work. Uh, if you want our military to do the job that the military can do better than anybody in the world, will do, but you've got to give them the resources and the certainty that, that those resources will be there, the certainty and the predictability, uh, or you better expect uh, less. And don't, don't demand more, but less. So we're at a critical, critical time here, Fred, and I'm, uh, I'm very concerned about the military budget because I don't think it's enough, but I think answer your question, it's right on the edge whether we can do what we need to do to continue uh, to secure this country with the expectations, expectations we have. Now, can we do without fewer submarines? 
uh, uh, aircraft, new platforms. Uh, yes, but, but you'll pay a price for that. Uh, you won't pay the price next year uh, or, or two or three years, but you, you will pay a price. Certainly you will in five years, and you certainly will in ten years. And you've got to stay ahead of it. Now, as the American people, are the American people, leaders in the Congress, and whoever the next president is willing to make that kind of continued commitment, um, uh, we'll see. But I think it's one of the great, great debates that we need to have in our country that we haven't seen with this uh, goofy political season we've had so far. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of like this mass gong show all, all over. Uh, but that's a critical question. The pres this, uh, finally, the, we, when we get to two presidential yeah. candidates, it needs to be asked of those yeah. presidential candidates. And I, and I would go back and also say another one that's critical is a question you asked me, America's role in the world. I think that's very flaky. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, misconceptions. What, what do Americans want? What do Americans think they need? And they need to express themselves on this, and, the, and these our eventual candidates need to be very clear on what they think America's role in the world is and what our security interests are and how, do you, how you fund those. I, I, I will come back to the Mass Gong Show in a few <laughs> minutes, but uh, the, uh, let's talk a little bit about Syria. Um, as I go around the world, and particularly in the Middle East, a lot of our allies talk about August 30th, 2013, uh, when uh, you had spent that day approving plans for Tomahawk cruise missile strikes in Syria in response to uh, Assad's use of chemical weapons. Um, uh, and uh, and the, uh, uh, the president uh, uh, called you, called others, uh, and asked that to be stood down. Um, can you tell us a little bit how you experienced that at the time? And are some of our allies right in saying that that hurt the credibility of the United States and the president? The last part of your question, uh, I'll answer first. Um, uh, yes, I think uh, it did hurt the credibility of the President of the United States. I have always believed, and I sought close up as Secretary of Defense, because I'm dealing with my, uh, my colleagues, uh, ministers of defense from all over the world. Um, that. Um, and I saw it when I was in the Senate. I saw it as a businessman as I traveled all over the world. When a president of the United States says something, it means something. Now, we Americans, I think, kind of take that for granted. Well, the president said this, so what? It isn't that way around the world. When a president of the United States says something, especially about foreign policy or about, a, about another leader of another country, that means something. And we have to understand uh, that that means something. And the president and the White House have to understand that means something. And there are various interpretations, usually. Um, uh, and so that's why a president has to be very clear when he says things about foreign policy or about uh, any leader uh, has lost the credibility to govern. And uh, that leader cannot stay. Or a red line. Uh, we will respond uh, in the, this instance that you mentioned uh, if um, the Assad government used chemical weapons, uh, which we were very careful 
uh, in analyzing. We went through the United Nations, and uh, in fact, yes, it was uh, they were chemical weapons. Uh, there was a question there whether Assad's uh, forces used the weapons, or maybe it was someone else who was trying to give the impression that it was the Assad forces. Uh, all of this was vetted very thoroughly, and we uh, we saw the evidence that we needed that, uh, to know and be assured that it was the Assad forces. So to make those kind of pronouncements and then not follow through uh, does affect the credibility of a president. Now, in this particular case, as you know, um, one of the things that came out of that decision that was made by the White House uh, uh, after the decision had been made, yes, to go ahead, uh, and we had given the president many, many options on this and spent a lot of time on this, uh, was to, uh, and the Russians were obviously significant in this, or it would never happen without the Russians, is, is to work out a way to start getting the chemical weapon precursors out of Syria, uh, uh, which we did. Now, I, I doubt if all of them are out, but it's, it's a significant amount of those precursors were removed from Syria. And it was a significant achievement, working with the Russians, working with many other countries, uh, and it was a significant technological uh, uh, advancement in the way of how we did it, and our military deserves tremendous uh, credit. This was not easy to do, and the, getting the the movement and the shipment of those precursors sent to a port, and where were you going to store them, and how would they be handled, how would they be transported onto a ship, whose ship, who had security for that ship, where would it be offloaded on another ship, what ports would it use, and Big, big project, and that was successful. So that that came out of uh, uh, the decision uh, not to uh, take action. I said in that article that uh, I'll let history judge whether that was the right uh, decision or not. Um, uh, let's stick with the Middle East a little bit. Uh, in August of 2014, you said the threat posed by the Islamic State, uh, quote, is beyond anything we've seen. What did you see at that point? That was pretty early on. What did you see at that point that others uh, uh, did not? And why did you have that instinct? Yeah, well, Fred, again, I, I, I have been around long enough to know and to working on the Intelligence Committee in the Senate for many years, co-chairman of the President's Intelligence Committee, traveling the world for 12 years on the Foreign Relations Committee of the Senate. Uh, if, if you're paying attention, and if you're reading, and if, 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 if you're listening, listening, and picking up things from the people who do know, our intelligence community, our State Department uh, officials are very connected into this, Defense Department, obviously. So you take the, the whole thing, and it, it's, just, it's, it's a mosaic, Fred. It isn't all of a sudden it just came to me. Uh, this group is, is now, out of nowhere, it, it came. And it's the, the most spectacular non-state challenge threat to America 
that, that we've ever seen. It didn't just come to me. It was an accumulation of, a, of, of like a mosaic, a piece here, a piece here. I'd, I'd been watching as Secretary of Defense. I had to. And um, it was very clear to me, Fred, this part was that when you, when you started really looking at what was going on, first, uh, the use, the sophistication of social media by ISIS. We've never seen anything like this. Al Qaeda wasn't even in the league. I mean, nothing like this. Then, then you start to see the military strategic and tactical planning and prowess that these guys had. Al Qaeda didn't have that. Uh, the funding, the resources, uh, and using ideology in a very distorted way the so-called caliphate, uh, uh, clearly connecting with the disconnected and the disaffected and the alienated, particularly young people, uh, who, had, who had suffered as their parents and grandparents under the yoke of totalitarianism, especially in the Middle East. Uh, and for us not to understand a lot of that. Um, Added up to, and then, and then, in my opinion, the very weak Iraqi government, and I think the Iraqi government bears considerable responsibility for what happened, uh, squandering five years of not doing what they had said they would do under Maliki and others, bringing the Sunni, Shia, Kurds together. Their constitution requires it, by the way, and it didn't happen. It further alienated the people of Iraq and the religious sectarian divides that were already existent, uh, tribal divides, historic divides, ethnic divides. And all this just, it just didn't explode onto the scene, but it was building, it was building, it was building. Some of our former ambassadors to the Middle East uh, are here, uh, uh, have written articles, written books about this, have lived it. Uh, so. When I was asked that question, Fred, I gave that answer because I absolutely believed. I never gave an answer, by the way, in anything I ever did that I didn't believe. Now, that's gotten me in some trouble uh, over the years, but uh, I might be wrong. I'm never afraid to be wrong. I didn't want to be wrong. I tried not to be wrong, but I could be, probably was, uh, but um, on some occasions. But... Uh, I really, really felt strongly that, that this was a force we had never been up against and we were not prepared to deal with it. Their intelligence capability and all the other dynamics that I've already mentioned, we weren't prepared to deal with that. We didn't know how to deal with that. And you're not going to solve this problem by just continuing bombing, 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 airstrike after airstrike. There's a military component to this, absolutely. But it's actually bigger and deeper because you're talking about ideology and history and disaffection that you're not going to solve by bombing. You'll make it worse. You'll make it worse. Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Secretary. Um, Asia, uh, you invested a lot of time in Asia and, uh, and including the six trips that I mentioned and, um, and focused in, in particular on building defense and security relationship with India. 
Um, I wonder if you can give us a bit of a view of what you were trying to achieve with your efforts in Asia. What did you achieve with your efforts in Asia? And, and, uh, and particularly why you invested the time that you did in India. Starting with India, uh, Fred, um, go back to my earlier comments I made here at the beginning um, of this discussion when I said that we are seeing a new world order being built. We're seeing a new uh, world order being defined, a new world order being uh, uh, playing out in different ways. Uh, and I think uh, you need not go much further than India to understand that, or certainly Asia. Uh, expectations, growth, possibilities, technology, education, wider and wider parameters on, on uh, possibilities and expectations. And India represents that as much as any one country, and here we are, India, as we know, overtakes China uh, in the not-too-distant future uh, as the most populous country uh, in the world. India will continue to be, and, and uh, I think, uh, will, big, will be more and more important uh, as we go deeper into this century. So I thought India was at one of those critical times, uh, like all countries, shifting, changing, moving, uh, going through a, a self-identity issue inside. Uh, I'm no India expert. I'm not an expert on anything. But again, I do try to listen, and I tr do try to pay attention, and I... Uh, and I'd been there a few times as a senator, and I thought that's a critical relationship for many reasons. I'm not the first one to figure that out. Many administrations have thought about that. But I learned something also, Fred, in politics and other things in life, that environments dictate possibilities. And I don't care how well-intentioned or virtuous your motives. If the environment is not right, it will not happen. Political environments dictate everything. I mean, how much boundary does a president or any leader have to change a country, to move a country, uh, is what I'm talking about. And India, I thought, was at that stage when there was so much possibility with a new leader coming on, Modi. And I did spend a lot of time working on that. And when the president met President Obama with, with, uh, with Prime Minister Modi, the deliverables in that, most of those deliverables came out of the Defense Department. And by the way, I don't take any credit on that. It was, it was uh, uh, so many people in the Defense Department who had been working uh, before I got the, to the Defense Department on this, but I just kind of put a focus on it, and everybody in this room knows, unless the leader focuses on it, it ain't going to happen. Uh, the CEOs of companies in this room, uh, there could be a lot of good talk about everything. That's a good idea and then let's go have lunch. Uh, unless the leader says this is going to happen and I'm going to lead this and we're going to do it. It will not happen. And uh, maybe I brought some voice and some, some leadership to it, but a lot of good people worked hard on this. So I thought also the geopolitical offset, China, obviously the rest of Southeast Asia, the Pacific, as, as we were rebalancing our focus as we were doing new things uh, uh, in that part of the world. India was an indispensable part of that, had to be. And that kind of bridges us into the next part of my answer to your, to your question, uh, the time I spent there. And I did. I took six major trips in, in two years. 
uh, more than Secretary Kerry, more than anybody in the administration. And, and part of that was to help build and strengthen partnerships, uh, not military to military. That was a part of it, a big part of it. And, and our Pacific Command uh, commanders were tremendous over the years on building this. But it had to be more than that. And I'll give you an example. I was the first secretary ever to invite the 10 ASEAN nations, their ministers of defense, to come to Hawaii for a meeting that I would host. Uh, never been done before. And they all came, three days. And at that three-day meeting, I had uh, a, a number of our senior government uh, officials uh, there. I had State Department uh, senior people. Uh, I had trade senior uh, representatives there. Uh, uh, I had Peace Corps representatives. So, so the point was, this isn't just a military-to-military -military deal. That's important. Security, stability, economic prosperity. You can't disconnect any of those three. They all, they all are the tripods for progress for a future of a country or a nation. But, but you can't have any of them without the other either. So you, you, stability and security are key to economic prosperity. But, but what are we offering the United States more than just our ships and our manpower and our security? We've got to do better than that because most of those countries are suspicious of our motives. You just want to use us as a base. You just want to use us as a military ally. No, that'll come. It's okay, because we have common interests here. Partnerships, partnerships based on uh, the common interests of our countries. Now, we did the military piece too. Pacific Command put on great shows and we had great demonstrations and uh, uh, of course, which those defense ministers appreciated, but we did far more, uh, far more than that. Uh, that's an example, Fred, of, of when you ask, well, what was I trying to accomplish? Strengthen current alliances, relationships, build new partnerships. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do the deal with the Philippines, which yeah. just recently has been executed. But when I was there, we were able to sign the deal on starting to use, again, Subic. Clark and Subic, yeah. uh, which were really critical bases for us. Not station American troops there anymore. That's not the way to do it, which we learned. Uh, but deployments and being able to to, to use those ports and those airfields, um, uh, respecting the laws, respecting the people, and not using the people and using the nations. But, but uh, the Philippines clearly understand, or they wouldn't have done the deal. This is in their interest, too. But, but they had to have a say in that as well. Also, I would remind uh, everyone here that the United States of America has seven treaty obligations in the world. Five of those sevens are in Asia Pacific. We have always been a Pacific power. Uh, we uh, have always looked west. I say that at the same time I say, as I've done this to my NATO colleagues many, many times and our friends in Europe and elsewhere, that doesn't mean that we're retreating from any other part of the world, not at all. It, it, it's not a retreat from any part of the world. It's a rebalancing of assets, of issues, of realities. I mean, nobody in the world today does not understand that future markets, future growth, does not reside in the Pacific and in Asia. 
I mean, any measurement of that. That doesn't mean uh, Europe's going away, should go away, or any other, uh, Africa. Africa becomes more and more important. So it's, it's balancing our, our interests, responsibilities, and matter of fact, we've done more with NATO uh, uh, in the last couple of years than we've done with NATO in 20 years. Now, Mr. Putin helped uh, uh, get us there, not the way we organized it, but uh, <laughs> or would, would have wanted it, but well, let, that, that aspect didn't hurt. But, but let, let me go to that. I'm going to ask a very uh, brief question on Ukraine, then a brief question on American politics, and then hopefully we'll have a few minutes uh, for questions. The, um, the brief question on Ukraine, you've said we should have done more. Uh, uh, you were in particularly uh, in favor of defensive weapons, more in favor than some others in the administration. Can you talk about that? Because obviously you, you, you weren't talking about boots on the ground. You weren't talking, you know, you, you've always been in favor of the Atlantic Council and before of good relationship with Russia. So what, what do you think would have been uh, uh, perhaps a better response? Yeah. Well, let me begin this way. Um, and I, I've said this publicly. I give President uh, Obama uh, a lot of credit for not overreacting to to this particular situation, uh, which a lot of people, I think, expected him to, wanted him to, but he was always very careful, and I, I think this has been one of uh, President Obama's strongest foreign policy assets. He has not allowed the United States to uh, get caught in downward drafts of crises. Uh, it's easy, without even recognizing it, to ricochet from crisis to crisis. And when you get caught in those downdrafts, you are caught in a downdraft. As I often uh, would remind uh, the President and others in National Security Council, once, once you engage the, the United States military somewhere, you're engaged. And it normally doesn't get less. It gets more. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to commit the United States military somewhere, because it's the only honest way to do it, you better be prepared to go ahead and, and before you do that, ask the next set of questions. Then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens? Which I don't think we've done well over the last few years. Uh, whether it's invading Iraq, or Libya, because we didn't ask the question, who governs after Saddam Hussein? How will they govern? Who decides who governs? Who governs after Gaddafi? How will that govern, government be picked? Who decides that? Are we going to do that? So in my opinion, there were some pretty big blunders over the years because we didn't ask the tough questions. Oh, easy to put our military in. Our military is the best in the world, best in the history of man, performs better. Uh, and, uh, but don't do that to our military because there, there's not an, a military answer to things. Now, that said, to answer your question about specifically Ukraine, um, there were some pretty hard conversations and questions about how we were going to handle this because uh, Russia, uh, at the direction of President Putin, violated the sovereignty of another nation, and uh, international law. Now, you can go back and look at the history of Crimea. The, the reality is that 98% of the citizens of Crimea are Russian nationals. Uh, I've said, I think, uh, a great deal of, unfortunately, what happened in Ukraine 
uh, was a result of 20 years of corrupt governments in Ukraine, whether they were pro-West or pro-Russian. Uh, the poor people of Ukraine have been terribly, terribly served by their leaders. And uh, especially the eastern part of Ukraine, which is close to the edge of Russia. And I think one thing, too, going back to just a reminder of knowing a little history here, uh, Russia began in Ukraine, in Kiev. You go back and study Russian history hundreds of years ago, that's where it all began. And the Russians have always believed that, that Ukraine is part of, of who they are. Now, that's no excuse for what Putin did, absolutely not. But I think in trying to understand the realities here uh, of what happened, why did it happen, uh, we have to deal with that. And President Obama uh, was very clear that we were not about ready to go to war with Russia over Crimea. Now, uh, I, I suppose there are others who thought we should go to war with Russia uh, over Crimea. I didn't. And his, uh, I don't think anybody in his cabinet said that. I didn't hear it. Um, there were, but we had to deal with it. So one of the things that we did do, uh, back to NATO, is that we bolstered considerably uh, uh, our exercises, our training, our forward deployment of people, of equipment, especially on that eastern border. And we made it very clear in my conversations with uh, uh, Defense Minister Shoigu in Russia that the United States was very clear, President Obama was very clear, on exercising Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. And that is that we will come to the defense of any NATO nation that's invaded by anybody. We have, no, uh, uh, we have no alternative. And we made that very clear up front. Um, minister Shoigu and I, and, and I like Minister Shoigu, the defense minister, uh, had a, a number of conversations about this situation. Um, I actually was a little sideways from the White House on some of this, but uh, when, when um, they, they didn't want us really talking to uh, our Russian counterparts. Now, Secretary Kerry talked to Lavrov, which was the right thing to do, but uh, Chairman Dempsey, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, continued to, as much as he could to keep some military-to-military -military relationship with his counterpart, which, which I, I thought was critically important, General Dempsey did, to keep a military-to-military -military connection, communication, so that we didn't make big mistakes here, so that we didn't uh, second-guess each other or assume things that weren't right. And uh, I thought, too, that, uh, and, I, and I wasn't the only one, that we, we could have done more to assist the Ukrainians in non-lethal in, in non weapons, defensive weapons, equipment, at a much faster rate uh, to show uh, more support. But at the same time, we had, to look, we had to look at the reality is the Ukrainian army is very limited in its capacity. And we didn't want to get the Ukrainian army in a situation uh, by not understanding if we send the wrong, wrong signals here, uh, they would then believe that somehow we would come charging in or come to their rescue and send the wrong signal to the Ukrainians and their armed forces that we were, we, we were really there 
and would be there for them. So it was, it was, it was delicate, and I, I give President Obama a lot of credit uh, for walking a very difficult line on this. Now, we were under pressure at NATO because, as you know, the, the Eastern Front nations uh, were in a lot different situation than the Western European nations. Uh, for historic reasons, if nothing else. I mean, most of those countries on that Eastern Front had lived under the yoke of communism and of the Soviets and knew the brutality and knew what had happened. And uh, their concern was very real. And we, so we had to recognize and not diminish that, but bolster NATO, the seriousness of NATO, uh, and doing everything we could short of going to war uh, with the Russians. Now, this issue, as you know, is, is still not uh, resolved. Uh, but um, we don't want this to flare back up until we can get, get to some hopefully diplomatic solution as we, as we move back, as we try to unwind this. But last point I'd make on this, and it goes back to a lot of the, the points we were making here earlier in this discussion, the uncontrollables, the unpredictables, the unknowns, crisis after crisis flaring up. So isn't it interesting, there's been very little media and very little attention and very little focus in the, in the last year on Ukraine. Well, I don't think it's because there's no interest, but ISIS, Syria, Iraq, all of what's going on in that part of the world has just taken everybody uh, over here. The president has only so much time. His cabinet only has only so much time. We have only so much resource base to work from. So we, we've got to, this is my point about not getting sucked down these drafts of crisis uh, that, that will take you right over the edge before you even know it. And you're, you're, you're now knee deep in a crisis that you can't get out of. So. Uh, it's kind of a meandering answer, Fred, but I, I, I think uh, I think all those elements were involved in uh, in the equation. It was a difficult. It still is. It was a difficult issue to handle. Thank, thank you. Um, the uh, we started uh, about ten minutes late. Maybe we'll run a little bit over six thirty. Maybe about ten minutes. Uh, this last question for me. Uh, uh, for the media and the audience, uh, as you know, I was with the Wall Street Journal for many, many years. Uh, this is a transparent attempt to get you to cover our event. Um, uh, uh, so uh, it's a two-part question. The first is, what advice uh, would you as a Republican have for the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump? Uh, uh, please, please tweet. Get your tweets ready. And, um, and, and the second is really looking at the Republican Party right now, uh, looking at this, uh, at the election campaign. You called it a gong show earlier. I wonder if you could flesh out that answer a little bit. I thought it was a pretty good answer, actually. <laughs> um, well, as to advice, I, I'm not going to be able to stall on this, I can tell, um, and try to think of a good, clever answer. Uh, but um, my advice to Mr. Trump or all the candidates, on both sides, Democrat and Republican, is focus on uniting this country, not dividing it. And I have been struck in this presidential campaign by the focus, not all candidates, unfortunately most of them, 
and most of the ones that are leading. Their candidates, candidacy has been, uh, candidacies have been focused on dividing America. That's dangerous. Uh, that's not who we are. I thought President Obama spoke to this pretty well last night. Um, it doesn't solve problems. It exacerbates problems. It deepens problems. Now, we should have various points of view. They should be expressed in campaigns or ways to do that. Uh, uh, but every presidential campaign in my memory, uh, and I remember my first one is a, is a very, very small child sitting around an old Philco radio with my granddad and my dad in Ainsworth, Nebraska, a little town up on the Sioux City or South Dakota, Nebraska border, listening to the 1948 uh, presidential results. My poor mother uh, was going through labor in a five-bed hospital in Ainsworth, trying to get, get this over with, uh, bearing her second son. And my father was around the radio with my grandfather listening to those uh, returns. And I, and I was very young, but I still remember that, that event. My point is, every presidential election I can recall, uh, has been about bringing America together, has been about uh, uniting America, that we all have different points of view. This is a country uh, that's a tapestry of cultures and histories and traditions that's so astounding. I mean, how it all works, it's just amazing. Why don't we play on that? Why don't we focus on that? Uh, rather than what divides us. And that'd be my advice to all of them. Uh, party, Republican Party. Well, uh, I have some former colleagues here and others who could probably give better answers than me. But when you ask me about the Republican Party, I'm not sure what the Republican Party is uh, today. It's not the party that I started out in. I think it is a, it's an amalgamation of tribes I think the Republican Party is tribal today. It's, it reminds me uh, kind of the area I grew up in Nebraska uh, of the Sioux Nation. The Sioux Nation was, uh, was made up of many different tribes. And that's where the Republican Party is. And I think the Republican Party will get to uh, a center of gravity that generally philosoph philosophically kind of expresses what the Republican Party generally used to express. Uh, I don't know anyone who, who really, that I served with in the Congress or anybody in politics who can honestly say, I agree with every sentence of the Republican Party, if you're Republican, or the Democratic Party. I mean, there are those out there, I suppose, like that. But, but generally, the Republican Party had a philosophy. The Democratic Party had a philosophy. I'm not sure what the Republican Party philosophy is. I'm not sure what the party is. I don't, I, I don't know where it is. Uh, I saw that evolving when I was in the Senate. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't run for a third term, and I think I had a pretty good shot at being reelected since I had just been reelected six years prior with 84% of the vote. I didn't think I'd get 84% the third time, but I think I'd been all right. 
and I, I didn't want to spend another six years of my life in that kind of a situation. Uh, the chaos and the absolutism that's now uh, really been rooted in, in, in essentially both parties, but especially the Republican Party. Um, I'm all right all of the time. You're all wrong all of the time. And you have nothing to say. Um, and that's just the way it is. I think what's saving the Democratic Party and has over the last eight years is they have the White House. And when the party who has the White House, it kind of keeps everybody behaving. Uh, not all the time. Uh, there are you know, the, the, those misbehaviors uh, in each party. But uh, a party who controls the White House has got the crown jewel. That kind of keeps everybody together. When you don't have that, even though you've got the Congress, it's different. The other part of this is, as far as the Republican Party, and I think, again, you could apply it even to the Democratic Party, but uh, uh, you asked me about my party. The other thing that we've got to get back to, and this is not just party-centric, but it's, it's more candidate-centric. Why do you want to come to Washington? Tear it down? Uh, you go out and campaign against Washington. What the Senate's a terrible place, can't get anything done, House is a terrible place. But yeah, you want to come here, have Senator in front of your name, or Congressman. What's the point? Well, the point should be only one point, and that is to help govern our country. Govern. Govern, govern, govern. We haven't done any governing in this country for a long time. Both sides are to blame for that. Both sides. And that's the greatest responsibility any of us have who was elected, is to help improve the country, make it better, move it forward, compromise where you need to compromise, but get it done. And govern, that's, that's governing. That's governing, not political speeches. Uh, and, and so I think it all wraps into one, Fred. Uh, the Republican Party will, will come back to some center of gravity at some point. I think it's probably 2020 before we see that. I mean, I, I do. Uh, I may be wrong. As I said, I've been wrong before on a lot of things, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen in this election. I think it's, it, we're going to have to go through probably another four years of sorting out who are we, what do we believe, what do we stand for, what do we want to accomplish for our country. Thank you, Secretary Hagel. As you can all tell, uh, we could have done an hour, hour and a half on Ukraine or on Syria or on governance or on politics, uh, but we're very near the end of our time. I'm just going to take two questions, one from, from one here, Barbara, and, and please also, um, please. Let, let, oh, I, you know, we have to take Senator Warner. You're, first, Senator Warner. But thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the first and Gulf I'll pick War. Up, I'll pick up. I'll gather the three questions. Yeah. First Gulf War. Uh, it caught us by surprise. Kuwait was invaded. President Bush went to a dozen-plus nations and got their support. He went to the United Nations and got a resolution. And he came to the Congress and literally demanded that we show our support or not show it. And we fought for a week in that chamber and finally passed a resolution authorizing the use of force by our president pursuant to the UN resolution. Only by five votes did we win. And the rest is history. We're at that juncture now with ISIS, when this Congress has got to step in, figure out with Obama some joint basis on which to go forward against it, and vote on it. 
do you intend to participate to try and bring your leadership and your experience to bear on Congress getting involved and repeating, joining with the President? And that's why America is strong, between the two co-equal branches getting together and resolving a dispute. And Sen uh, uh, Secretary Hagel, uh, thank you for that question. Let me pick up the last two, please, here and there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Secretary Hagel. It's a pleasure to see you here Barbara, again. You. Um, I wanted to ask about Syria. You've said bombing alone won't do it. You've been critical, I think, in the past of the administration for not doing more, but you've also said that regime change is not always the answer. So looking at Syria now, where we are now, what would your advice be to the administration to try to end this war in some reasonable way? Thanks. There is a memo that's written on that, I think. It's a, but just a minute, let me, let, me pick up the, let me pick up the last question. That was impertinent of me, excuse me. Yeah, uh, I mean, you can't get that old journalistic <laughs> problem out of your system. <laughs> yes, thanks, Senator uh, Randall Ford with Raytheon. Early in your remarks, you talked about technology. And there are a lot of interesting technologies in the defense space right now. Um, hypersonics, um, autonomous uh, systems, directed energy, nanotechnologies, cyber weapons, and so forth. And I just wonder if you'd speculate a little bit about where you see the, those technologies trends going and what sort of impact that'll have on the national security establishment of the future. Okay, um, Senator Warner. The only problem I ever had with Senator Warner serving with him was that we, we agreed too damn much on all issues. Uh, uh, John, I am fully in agreement and I've said so. I actually said so in testimony while I was still Secretary of Defense. The Congress has a responsibility to go on the record on this. Um, one of your successors, Senator Kane from Virginia, uh, has been very deliberate on this and very forceful. He's right. Uh, my goodness, if the Congress of the United States can't even put themselves on record on something this serious, but yet the same people who refuse to vote or don't want to vote or make excuses not to vote go out and give campaign speeches about how terrible ISIS is and blaming the Obama administration for mishandling it and so on, uh, th that's not just disingenuous, that's dishonest. Uh, we, we've, we, we've got to see the Congress on the record, give some leadership. The American people deserve it and our military men and women deserve it. And thank you for asking the question. Barbara, on uh, Syria, I have said for some time I said it when I was Secretary of Defense, I've said it publicly, that uh, in the Middle East, Syria specifically, to your question, um, there cannot be, will not be, any possibility of resolution solution until there's a platform of stability. Stability in the sense that it is stable enough, stable enough to start taking it to the next level of trying to sort out what's going on. Uh, I don't have to go into the history, everybody in this room knows it, of the complications there. And that means working with Russia, clearly, closely. I think it means working with the Iranians. I don't think you will see any possibility of any stability in the Middle East until the Russians, the Iranians, the United States, and the, and the Arab nations are, are part of that. We have, I'll tell you something else, we have allowed ourselves to get caught and paralyzed on our Syrian policy by the statement 
that, that Assad must go. Assad was never our enemy. A brutal dictator, yes, a lot of brutal dictators out there. I'm not for brutal dictators. Uh, but we should have learned from Hussein, Saddam Hussein, and Gaddafi. You can take a brutal dictator out, but better understand what you may get in return. We never ask that question, what's coming after Assad? Assad is eventually going to have to leave, in my opinion, for all the reasons I think we know. That should not hold us captive to everything else, that we have to always go back to, well, but we said he's got to go. Well, okay, but let's get to this platform of stability. Russia, Iran, Saudis, whether that can be done, I, I don't know. All have to come together with enough common interests to help stabilize, to stabilize things, then try to start sorting it out. How can there be any sorting out until there's some element of stability? Technology. Uh, you might be uh, familiar with the speech I gave at Ronald Reagan Library a couple of years ago when I announced the rollout of the, of the third offset. And I referred to it as a Defense Innovation Initiative, DII. And it was focused on, I thought that we in the Defense Department were too captive to our own resources and to our own insular thinking, uh, although we've, we've uh, ever since World War II, had to rely completely uh, on the big uh, military industrial complex companies that build our planes, build our ships, and so on. But, but so much of that uh, was to our prescription, our direction, our being DOD. And I, and I was afraid we were losing out on a lot of new things that are happening because, uh, and I'm quickly out of my depth on innovation and technology, but I'm not so out of my depth, I don't understand a little bit what's going on. So much is happening out there so fast. And I don't know if DOD is positioned well enough to take advantage of that and know enough about that and to call upon outside, outside the Pentagon, outside of Washington, to, to, to really get a better sense of the larger scope of technology and innovation and what's going on out there. Now, DARPA, we have a, a lot of these institutions inside that have done spectacular jobs. And by the way, my comments should not reflect any criticism of any anybody in the Department of Defense. They've done masterful jobs. But I think we, we can do more. And I think they're impeded to some extent because we haven't gone outside and taken a lot of initiative. That's why I referred to it in that speech is a defense innovation initiative. We take the initiative to be more innovative because the Chinese are certainly doing it big time. The Russians are doing it big time. I mean, we, I think there's a lot of misconception about the Russians. Well, they're kind of these plotting old Russians that you know, are trying to do things the old way. No, no, no. Uh, and the non-state actors, ISIS being one of them, but ISIS isn't the only one. They're taking advantage of it. Iran is taking advantage of it. North Korea is taking advantage of it. So uh, that was the whole point of my initiative, and it, I think, cuts to, to, uh, to your point. Um, and, I, and I think we'll do that. We'll continue uh, to do that. Last point I'd make on this, uh, and it, it goes back to Congress. The Congress cannot allow itself to micromanage, just like the White House has done it. The Congress does it actually in, in many ways more than the White House does. Because what the Congress does, 
as John Warner knows so well, is every year they come up with the National Defense Authorization Act. And that is hundreds of pages of new directives for the Pentagon for new reports, new studies, on and on and on. And every time that happens, you take more of the energy, more of the time, more of the focus out of what the Pentagon should be doing. Now, there's no one who's a stronger oversight person than I am, the role of a Congress. But let's be smart here. It's straight political junk that comes from members of Congress on a lot of this stuff. It's, I mean, when you go up and ask the Air Force, for example, we need to start phasing out the A-10s. The A-10s have been a, a great platform, a great aircraft for the last 40 years. It's outdated. Just the maintenance alone costs that we need to bring in new platforms. We do it with all of our, our, our submarine classes, our destroyer classes. We do it with all of them. We're not going to close any A-10 assembly lines because those are jobs in my district, in my state. Well, how about the fact that we are now, we are now covering about 25% of overhead we don't need? Bases, facilities, we don't need them. It doesn't do anything for national security interest. Can't do that. No, no. Now, if you guys, the Pentagon, would just manage smarter and better, now you're going to have to go ahead and keep all that waste, but it's your fault that you don't manage better. Uh, well, okay, Congressman. Okay, Senator. Uh, but, but as long as the Congress continues to do what it's doing, it really impairs the ability of our people in the Pentagon, for example, uh, to do what they have to do to make the hard choices. I mean, Mark Welch is the uh, chief staff of the Air Force. He was an A-10 pilot, loves the A-10. I use the A-10 as a clear example because it's gotten a lot of attention. He loves that airplane, Air A-10 pilot. He said it's time to go. I mean, we have to recycle and, and bring in the new technology and the, and the new aircraft. Maintenance costs are killing us on these old, old platforms, whether it's Navy ships, whether, whatever it is. That's taking money away from the long-term commitment of new platforms we're going to need to stay ahead of the Chinese or the Russians or any other threat. I mean, I was there. I understand it. I get it. But I've got to say, I never did that. I never, I never did. And I, I wasn't always popular with my own constituents on this. Uh, but I always used one measurement when I was there as a senator. Does it add to the national security of this country? Nothing else. No congressman or senator wants to see something shut down in his or her district or state. Of course not. But the Defense Department is there for one reason. Every Defense Department dollar that goes into protecting this country should be about protecting this country. Nothing else. It should not be an economic development program. That's an aside. That's good. But that shouldn't be the first consideration, and unfortunately, that has become the first consideration. I think we've covered it. So, so, okay. Thank you. So, uh, Randall, Barbara, uh, Senator Warner, these are great questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to many more questions. Uh, I'd ask you to remain in your seats while the secretary exits the room. Let me just close by saying the following. We are so proud of our association with you, Secretary Hagel. Yes, I think you all can understand why we invented a title called Distinguished Statesman uh, at the Atlantic Council, uh, because you have not only earned it, you continue to 
uh, speak in that manner. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and we look forward to continuing to work with you and, uh, and hope you will inspire um, directions in this country uh, for many years yet. So thank you so much, Thanks, uh, Secretary Hagel, for taking this time with us. Thanks, Fred. Th thank you all very much. Thank you.